that year honestly had a lifetime of memories. Every race weekend, it was like a miraculous save from something, and it was a different thing every week. It was incredible. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Beyond the Grid with me, Tom Clarkson. We've done something a little different this week, because I haven't got one special guest like normal. I've got four, and the glue that links the Fab Four is that not only do they all work at Mercedes, they've all been with the Brackley-based team since the beginning. And I'm not talking about 2009, when Mercedes bought Braun Grand Prix. I'm not even talking about Honda. I'm talking about the beginning of British American racing in the late 90s. They said he might never win a Grand Prix. He's done it! Jensen Button wins the Hungarian Grand Prix! Get in there! Get in there, Jensen. Fantastic. Well done. Mix one, pick up rubber. Awesome job. Unbelievable. crosses the line to win the Formula One title of 2020. Lewis Hamilton reaches the summit and becomes a seven-time world champion. BAR was a startup company, a team that was built from the ground up ahead of making its Formula One debut in 1999. And these four guys, the fabulous Brackley boys, as I like to call them, were there then or shortly afterwards. And they're still there now, more than 20 years later. So take a bow, Ron Meadows, Andrew Shovlin, Simon Cole and James Vowles, all of them top guys. They remain loyal to the team when it morphed from BAR into Honda, and they stood firm when Honda pulled out at the end of 2008 and Ross Braun came to the rescue. And this quartet now forms the pit wall at Mercedes, Ron as sporting director, Shove as trackside engineering director, Simon as chief engineer trackside, and James as motorsport strategy director. Theirs is a fascinating tale, an emotional roller coaster of extreme highs and the lowest of lows, and the one constant throughout is the bond between them. As you're about to hear, they're like brothers. We recorded this just before that incredible season opening win in Bahrain, when they all played an integral part in helping Lewis Hamilton defeat Max Verstappen's much-fancied Red Bull. I really hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, I'm Ron Meadows. I started with the Brackley team in October 97, and my initial role was to build the factory. So I didn't really have a title because there was no HR department. I am now the sporting director for the race team. I'm Andrew Shovlin. Everyone just calls me Shov, though. And when I started in October, it was 1998, and I was in the vehicle dynamics department, which there were two of us who were doing the vehicle dynamics back then. Um, And now I'm trackside engineering director. I'm Simon Cole, and I started at the end of 2001 as a test engineer, so going testing every couple of weeks, mostly in Spain. And I am now the chief engineer trackside. I'm James Fowles. I started also at the end of 2001. Um, The role, I think, was data acquisition engineer back then. It was sort of a link between electronics projects and race engineering. And my title now is Motorsport Strategy Director. Guys, you've all been here ages, but let's start with the present. Uh, Let's talk about Mercedes now in 2021. 
What makes this team so special? Sure. That's quite a difficult one, really. I think a lot of it is sort of the, the culture that we've been working to build up over the last number of years. And that work started in around 2013, where we realized the team had had so many different owners and faces, and we had a bit of an identity crisis. And with Mercedes fully on board for the future, it was this opportunity to kind of build a culture here from the ground up. And a lot of effort went into that, but we were kind of deciding what sort of team do we want to be and what do we want the values to be. And it, it's just a genuinely nice place to work. And that's why I think we all, we all love being here. It's a lot of fun, but even when it's tough, we're all looking after each other and, and we just enjoy every day of it. Simon, how much difference does stability make? Because it went through quite a lot of change of ownership from BAR to Honda to Braun, finally to Mercedes. Now you've got the stability and, and as Shove says, the, the cultural change. Did the stability make a difference to you guys on the ground? It certainly does. And I think, I think it's our greatest strength is the fact that we've got a very stable core to the organisation and we've worked with each other for a number of years and even the people who have come more recently are fitting into that sort of stable core of individuals and we know utterly that we can rely on on our colleagues around us and and who do the majority of the the graft back in Brackley. So James when Merck took over at the end of 2009 could you have imagined that you would have won 102 races just 11 years later? No, I, I, I don't think anyone would have, within our organisation, have believed that. It's a common story, it's out there, but there, were, there was an offsite where we discussed at one point what, what we should achieve, and it felt guilty even suggesting to win one championship, let alone multiple championships. This is a team that came from success in 2009, but we also knew at the end of that year things were tough. Other teams were faster than us, so to have the perception that you would then go on to do what we've done, it was unbelievable back then. It got worse before it got better as well. <laughs> hey, but Shop, that's an interesting point. Why did it get worse before it got better? I think a lot of it was we were trying to, you know, we had an objective that kind of came with Mercedes coming in, that we were there to win championships. But ultimately, we just didn't have the resource to compete with the big teams at the time, you know, Red Bulls and um, Ferrari and, and McLaren and people. And it was Toto who, when he arrived, who actually said, you know, your objective's to win a championship, but your budget's the same as Williams, and theirs is to finish fifth. And it was really, get, I think, getting it in line, but also there was, you know, a lot of learning that we did. And in the Braun year, we started work on that car, that 2009 car, very early. We had a head start aerodynamically in terms of the regulations, but we were slipping back through that whole season. We weren't the quickest car at the finish, and, you know, the effects of that you saw in 2010 and, and onwards. Ron, can we take it further back? How unrecognisable to 1997, October 97, well, I suppose you were still building then. Let's take it to 99. How unrecognisable is the team today to that one that embarked on that first championship in 99? Well, the uh, initial business plan when I was building the site was for 250 people. And I was trying to think what department, I'd never built a factory before, and I was trying to figure out who worked in what department, because I'd come from IndyCar, which was 50-odd people. So I was asking, as people were arriving, well, how many will work in your department? And how many seats do you think we'll need in the design office? And what machinery do we need to buy? But uh, the business plan was 250, but by the end of year one, we were 250. And by the end of year three, we were 450. 
So it, it soon grew. So who employed you, Ron? Was it Adrian Reynard? Adrian and Rick approached me at an IndyCar race and said, we've got this project that might be happening with uh, BAT. Couldn't explain any more. And I was having to make a decision whether I was going to come back to the UK anyway. And when they said that, I just had a leap of faith and said, well, I'm going to come back to the UK anyway. And uh, my season ended in September and I started in October. You were learning on the job, is that right? Because you'd been running Formula 3000 teams, you'd been running the Walker team, as you say, in IndyCar, but this was a whole step into the unknown, is that right? Yeah, it was. To be honest, I, I was never someone who, who aspired to be in Formula 1. It, uh, it always seemed like quite a, quite a big teams involved and you were a bit more of a number. You know, I couldn't have been further from the truth because people are so busy in their individual departments, but the cars are so complex compared to the current cars, whether it's 3000 or F2. So it's not that you just turn up and do your little bit. You're, you're involved in lots of different departments and you do make a difference. Everybody makes a difference at Brackley, whether you're the cleaner in the hydraulics room or whether you're James Allison making all the big technical decisions. Everyone can stop the car. So didn't plan on working in Formula One. Here we are 23 years later. <laughs> it's still there and still loving it. I am still loving it. I actually, my plan was to never travel. When I came back, I said, okay, I'll do the factory. I'll find myself a little corner to hide in for the next five or six years and go and do something else. But uh, the first year with BAR was 99, I believe. Didn't go so well. I think the car was reasonably quick, but very unreliable. And in those days, you only scored points in the top six. And I think they finished seventh on several occasions. I think at one time they promised it was like a 10 grand bonus if, you, if we score a point. It might as well made it 10 million because it didn't look like it was ever going to score one. And uh, by the third race of 2000, things hadn't improved and they were struggling with staff and they asked me would I be prepared to travel. And it was all looking quite shaky, to be honest, because BAT weren't happy with the results. So I, I said I will do three races and uh, see how we get on until you find someone who really wants to do the job. And that was 20-odd years ago and many hundreds of races. You and Shove have been here since the beginning. What did you guys make of Adrian Reynard's claim that you were going to win your first race? Because Reynard had won in every formula they contested. Formula Ford, Formula 3, Formula 3000. They'd won their first race, even in IndyCar as well. What did you make of that claim about Formula 1? I'm not sure it was a claim, I think he was asked the question, where do you think you want to be? Or, you know, what's your ambition? And he, he said, well, we'd like to try and win our, in our first season. And uh, someone took that as, oh, he said he's going to win his first race. I was straight out of university and I think I believed it, actually. <laughs> so I'm a little bit wiser now. Um, but I, I must admit, it, uh, it was quite a shock when you realised how hard it was. And even, as, you know, as Ron said, getting that thing to... Uh, to finish a race I think I think we were testing in Manicore in the middle of the year before we got the thing to even do a race distance in testing and basically you had to assemble an entire car's worth of brand new parts and then just cross your fingers. Villeneuve qualified 11th at the first race and I think he ran as high as third in Spain that year so it was quick but unreliable. I remember the first test day we did and uh, it went down the main straight to Barcelona and we said, oh, where's the rear wing gone? Because so I think the engine cover fell off and took off the rear wing. That was yeah. in the first day. <laughs> so how would you guys sum up the BAR era? It's difficult. I mean, 
It was one of those that you put into the uh, character building category. And we've got quite a lot of years that we've put into the character building category. There were good bits of it. And, you know, you think in the second year, I think we'd finished fifth in the championship and we were tied on points with Benetton, who finished fourth. You know, at the time, you kind of, you were, the aspirations of BAT who were backing uh, the team were bigger than that because, you know, they wanted to be right at the front. But it's quite an achievement when you look back on it to, you know, in year two to be finishing top five in the championship. And I think the year after that was the first podium um, in 2001. And scoring points was difficult when you only got them in the top six. Is Formula One harder now than it was back then? Work-wise hours, I think it's easier and because, you know, there's a lot of races. But the testing then, back then, was the, was the killer. You were, you were testing all the time and, and there was no curfew. Um, so, you know, every night you were there till very late and getting five, six hours sleep. So I, th- I think the issue is that we're getting older. So it's hard to separate one from the other. You were testing and racing, show. Yeah. Ron, testing and racing. Not all tests, but most. And then when you guys, Simon and James, came in, in 2001, travelling or not travelling? I was travelling, but I'd left... That, that year, I left the World Rally Championship because I wanted to travel less, uh, a bit like Ron, and ended up doing a test every two weeks in Spain that was really gruelling. Flipping hard work, but it was a really interesting challenge. And I think that's changed massively. You know, the removal of testing from the pit lane, nobody would want to go back to that. It was hard work, and we're not all that sure always why we were doing it. And are there many parallels between the World Rally Championship and Formula One, or was it like a completely new sport? It's completely different, but it's also really hard work. You know, so people in motorsport tend to thrive on that sort of lack of sleep and long hours and lots of travel, especially when you're young. I'm finding it a little more challenging now. But um, it was totally different, and uh, I'm very privileged to have done both, as as is Ron, actually, but... I find the variety fascinating to compare them. I still draw on the deep reserve of anecdotes when we get down to the bar in the evenings. Now, James, data acquisition, I imagine, was a completely different ball game in 2001 compared to now. Can you put some numbers on that? I mean, data generally has grown exponentially year on year. Um, so you'd be at you know a handful of channels back in the early 2000s, 50 or so in the base. Um, I think we're now at 50,000, 60,000, to put it in context. But everything in the world of data has just grown each year. Um, I'd probably say the last two, perhaps not as much of a pattern as it was the last 15 before then. But it's not just the data that's grown in terms of quantity. We actually both understand how to use it and process it. As you can imagine, 50,000 channels of data, how does humans or how do humans go through that? So there's more techniques in place to be able to do that. There's also more humans to look at it as well. But also the quality of the data is actually much, much better now. There were questionable, exactly as Simon said, when we were testing back in, I mean, I, I started traveling in 2003 a bit and then started doing tests and races in four. But exactly as the guy said, you, you were just pounding around the track and generating a lot of information, a lot of the time unsure of what you were really getting out of it. And that's completely different now. And strategy back then? This is the strategy when I first started, obviously I I wasn't in it, but there was no race strategy engineering in 2001. It didn't exist as a task. It was a, you would talk about it on on an evening before the race and say, should we do a one stop, two stop? And that was basically the discussion point. There was an Excel spreadsheet, I think, for memory that sort of roughly told you what to do. 
it wasn't formalised. It wasn't even believed to be a strong part of what's required for the race weekend. Car performance was everything, then reliability and strategy wasn't a part of it. So one of the, the areas I got into quite early on, it was 2002 for the first time, was how could we apply a little bit more science to it? Because it was a domain that no one really had touched, it was free freedom to be able to do what we wanted. So we started developing tools and systems that allowed us to really made more informed decisions and actually understand what's behind it. And I think those all came on, online about 2003, 2004 time. And um, they became, or they are now, an integral part of what we do. But my sort of progress was more doing testing and doing a bit of engineering, coming here to the track, doing the third driver engineering. So back in 2004 and 2006, we had a third driver. And it was paving the way or paying, if you like, for me to also do the strategy at the same time because it wasn't considered a full-time role. And then around about the sixth time, I think we migrated it to a role that really requires its own basis and then built the team from there. And the team's just expanded year on year. Uh, and again, I would say the amount of information we have in that world is exponential growth. If I look to see what we were using back in 2006, it's frankly embarrassing compared to now. And I'm sure we'll look back again in 10 years' time and think the same thing. So guys, last question really about the BAR era involves Monaco 2005, because you weren't there. And I just want to know, as, as young uh, I, guy... I, I was there. I, I, was, <laughs> you still I, I was there as well. I was, yeah. Well, just what, as spectators, uh, helping the, out? There was still, um, I, I remember doing a Michelin tire meeting with Pascal <laughs> and um, just being there to collect various bits of data, but no, obviously. James, but as young guys, hungry to race, you had that whole controversy around Imola. We don't need to get into that now, other than the repercussions were that you guys were banned for a race. And how did that feel? Felt like you were sort of naughty boys a bit. Um... You were on the naughty step, <laughs> weren't you? Yeah. There's only two occasions in the last 20-whatever years where I've had a um, Sunday dinner while watching a Grand Prix. That was one of them. But yeah, it did, it did feel very much like we were on the, uh, on the naughty step. But did you guys feel throughout that era that you were marked men or, or the team was marked? But right from the outset with the, the livery drama in 99, you wanted to run different liveries on each car and the FIA got involved and said you can't do that. And then, of course, there was this incident in 2005 and just... I don't know, did you always feel that the crosshairs were on you in anything that you did as a team? I've never felt like that, to be honest. I think the FIA or whoever you, know, you believe is coming after you, I think that they're generally trying to do it for the right reasons and we probably didn't abide by the rules for the livery at the time and didn't ask the right questions and, and got punished. But no, I've never felt at any point that we're in a line of sight. And Ron, tell us about the airline seats that were being built at Brackley because you've already said that the site was for 250 people and before you even went racing you were more than double that how did you then have the capacity to build airline seats as well we didn't that was part of uh Reynold racing cars the sites at Brackley was that the actual race team the F1 race team was just over the bridge which is about two acres of the site there was another 10 acres which was supposed to be building Indy cars for the next 10-15 years but I think they produced a bit of a turd that season. And they... I've never heard a racing car being described like that. And they, and they failed to sell any cars the next year, so they, they yeah. struggled. So they had to keep the guys busy by making airplane seats and doing whatever they could to get back on their feet. Okay, look, let's move on to the Honda era, of course. It, it comes fully under their control in 2006. You've been using their engines since 2001. What difference was felt on the ground when it came under full Honda ownership? 
it's difficult to know where to start with it. So for the starting point, because we'd had a relationship that was growing year on year prior to that, it, it wasn't that it was a sudden step change from one day to the next, particularly. It just grew in its nature. But what came with it was something that um, grew in intensity across the next three years. Honda have a very, their way of working. It's the way that's successful for them. And truth be told, if we knew how to work culturally with them um, by taking the experience we gained across that and start again, I think we would have had a stronger relationship overall. They're two different cultures brought together at the same time. We had our way of working, they had their way of working. And it took a long, long time to understand how to get the most out of both parties. The way the relationship actually continued was a little bit of a breakdown. They were actually in many ways mimicking or trying to do the chassis work on their side, believing that they could do a stronger job than we could in tandem and in parallel to ourselves. And as you can imagine, that at some point will break down the relationship, which is what happened over time. In terms of what they could do with the power units, with the engines, sorry, back then, it was extraordinary. We had engines that not every year, but every other year near enough were excellent. They really were near enough towards the top end of the class. Now that deteriorated as we went towards the end of that agreement, but early on in four and six, those engines were very, very good. What was difficult was the communication failure between the two sites. So I, I remember a particular test that I did um, where we were at Monza, and exactly as the guys said, you're fatigued, you're exhausted. We went there for a week just pounding around the track. It was Anthony driving, I think, from memory. And it was um, the third car that I was working on on that Friday. We went out, we did near enough 1.8 kilometers, and the engine detonated. This is an engine that we had done thousands of kilometers the week prior. And so it didn't make much sense anymore. And what we did is we didn't send out the two race drivers. Uh, we changed the engine in, in, in the car that I was working on. We went back out and I think we made near enough half a lap or several laps and that was it before it detonated again. And what happened is the communication was a fantastic sign of it. We asked multiple times, is this the same engine to make sure we understood where we were? And the answer back every time was it's the same engine. Now in reality, it wasn't, everything had changed. It's an example of the communication breakdown that happened during that period. It happened time and time again, and it sort of shows the lack of trust, I think, to a certain extent between the, both organizations. It shows how one wanted to work in its own side way against us. It's things that I think taught us not to behave in that way or not to have that relationship with the engine supplier going forward. And the relationship that we are now with HPP, despite the fact that we're on two different sites, is one entity working together. And I think it really does stem from getting things wrong early on in that relationship with Honda. Really interesting. But of course, there were good moments, as you say, James. Jensen's victory. Hungary, 2006. Yeah, Given I mean, everything, must have been very sweet. That, I mean, that, that was an incredible race. But that, that was still when BAR were involved, wasn't it? It was yeah. to, 2007 was when it, it became entirely Honda. And that was the last year, which sort of felt... Um, I mean, it was very nice um, to have got the race win after it had... It had taken so long. And, and also, before we'd won the first race, there were lots of occasions where we thought we might win. And then invariably, it was where Ferrari were having a bad day and they just turn everything up and sort of gobble you up and uh, they're back in front by the finish. But yeah, that was a, a, one of those races that you'll never, uh, never forget. The 2004 car, second in the Constructors' Championship, in what was the team's fifth season in Formula 1? On paper, looks good. Do you look back with an element of frustration that you didn't win a race that year? Did it deserve to? Was the car uh, good enough? We, well, yeah, I think the car did, and I think the opportunity was um, Indianapolis. That was the race. I think there was a big crash with... Um, I don't remember who it was. Was it Ralph who had a big, um, a big crash just coming onto the start-finish straight? And we should have, we should have come into the in the pits but we stayed out and I think Taku then inherited the lead when Michael came in 
and he drove very, very slowly through the wreckage. Jensen was stuck behind him, screaming on the radio about why is he going so slow. And in the meantime, Ferrari were able to do a pit stop and popped out and they still had the lead. And that was the opportunity because the car was working well strategically. It it could have all gone right for us. And I think, to be honest, we just weren't, there was a bit of kind of stage fright where you got up up front in a race and we weren't really uh, ready for it. And I think there was another moment at Monaco that year where um, we thought, yeah, yeah, Jensen would could have won it but um, there was a safety car and we managed to get him in and truly had stayed out we thought he was going to get picked up by the safety car but the safety car was slow leaving the pits and he went by and again but I, you know I think it's it's just you have a lot of ones where you think that's the day and by the time we got to Budapest in 2006 you kind of didn't really let yourself believe it until we got the thing over the finish line. So let's fast forward to December 2008. Honda announced they're going to withdraw from Formula One. On my side of the fence, it was a shock. Was it a shock to you guys, Simon? Yeah, it certainly was. We knew we were in quite big trouble because before even the discussion about Honda leaving, there was a lot of discussion about testing being cancelled, which was obviously my thing, was the fact that I was track testing every two weeks and didn't really get so involved in the racing. And and Ross called me to say, there's a discussion going on because of the recession that everyone was experiencing that there was this, this discussion about cancelling the testing and that was obviously going to affect me even before the doubts around Honda staying in and then when we started to see Honda having to commit to redundancies at Swindon and around Europe it was pretty clear that they weren't going to put up with giving us money at the same you know they couldn't stomach the the experience of, of paying for us at the same time as they were laying people off quite rightly. So Ron how did you guys find out? Who told you? Was the team gathered together in the race bays? How did it work? The senior management at that point was about eight of us. And we were called in on December 1st to the boardroom where we were told. Did you know what the meeting was about prior no. to going in? No. Uh, senior director of Honda was there and with Nick Fry. And they, they told us. Um, but we couldn't tell the staff. They were going to be told on the 5th of December. For some reason, I'm not too sure, but there was some good reason for not doing it. So we had to sit with that on our conscience for four or five days. So we struggled with that. When we eventually told everybody, it was a, a big shock to the whole workforce. Now, we realised we were underperforming, but normally with F1, you have a couple of years of underperforming, then a couple of good years and a couple of bad years, and you bounce around. Don't forget, they'd only owned the company for two years. They were with us for more, but they only owned it for two years. Well, and, and they invested very generously. Yes. You know, they showed that there was no sign of this coming from the point of view. They weren't hesitant in investing in the infrastructure on site. They were very generous. And well, yeah, the, the it looked like they were in a long-term. The wind tunnel had just commitment. been built, um, and that you know that was a state-of-the-art wind tunnel that that at the time was as good as anything that any other team had. I think they were also building one in Japan, so a duplicate version of this. So Simon says the money was flowing really freely right up until the point that they decided to stop. And what was the message to the workforce? Go and get another job or we are trying to salvage the situation? Hold your horses. Very much the latter. But one of the interesting things that Ron just reminded me of was really at that time, at that, on those days, we had about probably 30% of the workforce in the, you know, upstairs in the design office, 30% of the workforce were Japanese. You know, they had, we had a massive Honda presence in the factory and the next day they went home and, you know, they were, they were friends and colleagues and they just vanished overnight. So the, the, the site felt empty within 24 hours of the announcement. But the message was very much, 
we're going to try and rescue this, but we've got no idea how at the moment. Bear with us. And James, how much confidence did you have that the team was going to be saved or did you guys start hunting around any job interviews down the road kind of thing? The thing that impressed me the most is the entire workforce got their heads down and kept getting on with it without the knowledge of what was going to come through. Ross was very good. I'll, I'll, I mean, I can vividly remember this image in my mind now. He was on the stairs in, in the Brackley Race Base and just rallying up the troops saying, are we going to fight? Are we going to fight for this? And it was, it was a moving moment whereby the entire workforce was clearly there to continue going racing and we would do what it takes to get ourselves back at the track. Now, um, many of us couldn't actually control that individually, but it also meant that our hearts were set on trying to keep going with this team. So I, I'm sure it would have been wrong to not see if other opportunities came your way, but actually I think the actual amount of people that left was minute or none. How conscious were you, Shav, of the progress being made on the 2009 car? Did you know that there was a, an absolute humdinger of a racing car in gestation? We knew it would be a decent car because we put so much effort into it. And we started so early. I think, you know, it was the year before 2008 at Hockenheim, which was about mid-season, was the point that we said, right, we're just going to forget about 2008. We'll focus on the new rules in 2009. And that was also a year where there was a tight battle at the front of the field, which is another thing that I think made that possible because I think it was Ferrari, McLaren, and it, it, was, it would have either been um, Renault or... Williams that were still um, fighting for it. So we were quietly working on the car, but really the only time we started to think this is properly quick was when we were, we didn't go testing and every, everyone was at a test. I think it was actually in Portimao. And there was a Toro Rosso there and it was their old car. They hadn't gone to the new rules and everyone else had the new rules. And that was a reference for us. That was the quickest thing there by miles and we were thinking that we'd pretty much recovered all the performance and we'd be as fast as our car. So you were sort of going around it and then thinking, well, hang on a minute, this means that we're nearly two seconds quicker than anyone else. And then you think, we must have got our sums wrong. Uh, bear in mind, we were adding in a, a decent step on the engine because going from uh, the Honda to the Mercedes engine was quite a gain. But on that kind of paper analysis, we sort of walked away thinking either we've got a very quick car or we're not very good at doing the maths. But also when you looked at them, you thought they all looked like our car did six months previously, where the, you know, the front wing shapes were, were just very much the boxes defined by regulation. But nothing prepared you for when you started running it in Barcelona and you were like, oh my God, this looks properly uh, fast. Shop, we'll come to that in a minute. But Ron, in terms of the engine, was it ever discussed that you were going to run the Honda that had been prepared for 2009, or was it always going to be a change of engine to Mercedes? It was always going to be a change, and uh, we, we all believed that we were going to go Ferrari for the first couple of weeks. It's obvious, Ross Braun, Ferrari, we need an engine. They want to give us an engine. Ferrari did want to give you an engine, did they? We believe so. Right. They, they, we were certainly talking to them, and then uh, I think we were told on the 23rd or 24th of December that we are going Mercedes. <laughs> Was there sort of panic across the design office then? Oh my God, it's the 24th of December, it's Christmas tomorrow. No, Christmas is cancelled. We've got to get this engine in the back of the car. It's, I, I don't think anybody's done that in, in the history of Formula One, you know, or not in the last 20 years, you know, to get a car together and to put the wrong engine in it in about six or eight weeks is, was 
an unbelievable experience. It was an incredible job. And obviously we weren't really involved in that. We just watched and the DO got on with it and it was stunning. And how much of a compromise was it? If you'd had you a year's build-up, would it, it have been if, a very different solution? No. No, if you looked at it now, you, you wouldn't be able to say what, what the compromise was. It was, it, was, it was very impressive. And let's, let's not lose sight that the, the, the whole of the workforce didn't know they had a job. So these guys were putting in the hours, yeah. hoping that we could create this car and generate some sponsorship to keep going. Right, so the Mercedes engine deal was done without you knowing that the team was going to be saved. Yes. There was talks ongoing, and it, it felt positive, but it wasn't a done deal. No, it wasn't, it wasn't clear whether it was going to be Ross's team run out of, you know, out of his own slush fund or whether it was going to be sold to somebody. But we just thought, well, if we haven't got a car, we, we definitely haven't got a saleable asset, and no, it's nobody's team. So we just got on with, you know, the DO did a, say, a fantastic job of getting on and producing what turned out to be an absolutely fantastic car and uh, an absolute fairy tale. Shove. Talk us through that first test at Barcelona then. Well, it was a long time ago, but the, um, the, one of the interesting bits was we actually started that test on a set of tyres that were 50 laps old, having driven around the school circuit at Silverstone, which was like a, it's not really a place to take an F1 car, but it was cheap. So that was where we did the, the shakedown. And so the first times we did, that were still way quicker than anyone else, were on these, this knackered old set of tyres and... I remember Jensen coming in and saying balance doesn't feel very good and pointing out just how much quicker he was than everyone else, which he actually then unstrapped, got out the car, came to look at the timing monitors because he didn't believe it, got back in. And then we went out on new tyres and, you know, again, you were seeing this gap that was like in the seconds, which you don't really get in your motor racing career normally. And then they started deleting our times because the teams were complaining that we'd obviously cut the chicane. But it, there was this sort of dawning realisation by about 10 o'clock in the morning that we were way ahead. I think even the other teams were kind of thinking, well, even if they're running light, even if they're running light and they've taken all the ballast off, they're still quick. And then you look around the garage and there were, you know, some people smiling. A lot of them were on paddy power and... Yeah, it was. There wasn't many people in the main garage because they all had the back place in their bets. <laughs> and uh, yeah, a number of them got, I think, 150 to one to win the championship. Um, so they did all right on that if you could get a few quid on it. Um, but it, it it was interesting, and you know, it's just the gap was the was the incredible thing. But it just came about from the fact that we had this head start on the regulations where everyone else was busy with the car from the year before and we were flat out on it and made well i think we made some good decisions conceptually on the car and in terms of, of the layout but the development time was just greater than anyone else jensen buttons a winner again braun gp our winners on their first race appearance and not only that it's a one-two finish button from barrichello the smiles are on ross braun what a result and history too <laughs> Sensational job. Sensational job, Jensen. Fantastic. Well done. You deserve it. And having been through the winter that you'd been through, how emotional was it actually to know that you're sitting on such a good car? It was really all about the emotion. I think then, you know, when we went to Melbourne was the time when we announced the redundancies there. So it was... You know, even that point where we went away um, racing, you knew that lots and lots of people in, back in Brackley were losing their their jobs. But you'd come off this 
winter of not knowing whether you, whether you had a job, whether you, know, you were going to be able to pay the mortgage and to kind of get dropped from that situation straight into this sort of fairy tale of the fastest car out there and winning race after race. I think I remember by the fourth race, I was coming back on the aeroplane and picked up one of the papers and it you know, sort of said, Jensen, but or we, we won the third of the four races in the, in the opening part of the season. And, and it, it was odd because it just kind of dawned on you that we're actually doing this. And then you realize this is the big, you know, the big shot at the championship. And it's kind of, you know, it's in all of our hands as to whether we're, we, we're successful or whether we let it slip but through it, our fingers. It was a very emotional time because prior to those tests we did, we had to announce the redundancies of the people who weren't going to stay with the team. And it was a, a fairly high percentage. And, you know, the, the guys on the test team who went on the itinerary for Melbourne sort of knew their fate without even speaking to them. So you had to go and speak to them before you could send the itinerary out, which went, went out the day before we actually went off to the test. It wasn't, you know, well scheduled. It was all last minute and it was certainly winning Melbourne. And we had, we had a one-two. We certainly didn't deserve a one-two because I think we were first and fourth because we had two shocking pit stops with uh, two, two bad ones with Rubens, one with Jensen, but I think Seb and Kubica hit each other in the last few laps, which allowed Rubens to come from fourth to second. So it was a one-two fairy tale. How many people were on the staff in 2009? I think it was about 400. Four, yeah, 400 450, I think we lost yeah, two. I think maybe we lost 300. Yeah, that's about right. Mm. 450, I think. Come on! Well done! Awesome! Jensen, that was unbelievable. Unbelievable. Great job. Oh, you have built me a monster of a car. You're an absolute legend. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for this. So you win six of the opening seven races in 2009. And then everyone catches up and it all gets a bit more difficult in the second half of the season. James, how do you explain that? I was going to go back on something Shove said, because it's interesting. For me, I, I was never thinking about the championship in that year. I was literally taking it race by race in the hope that if we win this race, more money will come. The car, Because I'm not sure it was 100% clear in my mind that we had the funds to continue to the end of the year successfully. We, we were being very careful on the income and the costs that we had. Even in Bahrain, when we came here, so other teams had been testing, I believe, in Bahrain that year. And... Um, uh, we hadn't. I remember vividly, we were not fastest car here, just Toyota happened to put the wrong set of tyres on the car, and we did the right one. And, and it was bits like that. It wasn't actually very clear, apart from the first few races, that we had the stonking car that was going to trounce everyone. By the time we got towards Barcelona, it was pretty clear that A, our updates were very small relative to other people, and the gaps were closing in very quickly. And as we went through the year, we were having to take more and more risks in order to keep being at the front, uh, the extreme being Monza, where we, we purposely, back then you had to qualify with your fuel on board, and we went for a one-stop. We put the cars sixth and seventh on the grid. All the cars in front of us won a two-stop, and we did it purposely, because with a car like ours, where we didn't have a, an, a Kurs unit uh, in the car, so that's one difference to other teams. We didn't have that start performance benefit and some performance benefit from it. We knew we were going to drop back, but if we can run our own race, we had a good chance of doing it. And there were a number of occasions I can pick out through the year where we came through. But it was clear, as Shub said early on in this, that the trajectory of other teams was such that we were not going to be the fastest team. And indeed, by the European season, we weren't. We just had to hang on in there and pull all the results in we could. I remember the crash at Spa being a low point. That was the first was time the car had been on the back of a low loader. Yeah. 
How many chassis? Is it true that Jensen raced the same, the same chassis all season? I, it, it's better than that. I think if Red Bull had crashed into us uh, early on in the season, we would have been dead in the water. We, we well, chassis three came along for Monaco. Yeah. So the first, all the races up until Monaco, we only had two. We didn't have any, um, we didn't have any spares. So just that minute, what would have happened if one of them had had a big shunt on a, on a Friday practice? If we broke the top, yeah, you'd, you'd have run one car. That would have been a one car, yeah. really? Wow. Just to touch on the, on the this, I find this a great story, just touch on the Melbourne pit stops. So uh, the issue we had was refueling. Our normal refueler from previous years had uh, left the team as part of the redundancies. And it was, we wanted to keep him, but he decided he was going to go and be a plumber. So uh, we, got, we got through Melbourne, realised we needed to make some change. So I called him and he, he came along as a weekend warrior, flying Saturday night to do the fuel for a day rate. And then straight after the race, go home and do his plumbing job for a fortnight, then come back again. That's amazing. Have you ever experienced anything like that before in your career? Not at this, not at this level of motorsport. <laughs> not in Formula 1. It's quite it, good value because it, it, it knocked about eight seconds off the pit stops. Yeah, <laughs> that, that year, not to label on it, but it honestly had a lifetime of memories. Every race, something was there that you can... Uh, examples of that were in uh, Bahrain, this very track, in fact. We had, obviously, I think it was the front flat back then could actuate up and down. And we had huge problems with it. You could sort of put one side up and the other one would drop back down again. And I, I remember being here on, on the pit lane floor asleep because I was just exhausted, just fell asleep on the floor whilst they went through all the processes. But each race had its own unique set of memories that came with it that are embedded in all of us forever uh, and it won't change and those feelings are extraordinary by comparison to most things you remember Bahrain you reminded me that we also the car was on the end of the cooling curb and we'd run out of cooling capacity <laughs> and we couldn't we couldn't do two laps in qualifying without overheating and and I was talking to Nicola who was doing our, our marketing for that year and, and she was saying, no, I don't understand what you're telling me. I'm saying, well, we, we, can't, we can't do two laps. You don't understand. Like, and she was saying, yeah, but what qualifying, what's qualifying going to look like? And I said, well, <laughs> we can do a lap. It's, that's what it's going to look like. And, and it was amazing. And then luckily it was a night race and we were safe. But it was, it was, as James says, it was like that every race weekend, it was like a miraculous save from something. And it was a different thing every week. It was incredible. The other one is Malaysia, for example, when it rained. That, our car would not have started. That steering wheel, when you lifted up and tipped it out, was full of water. No way were we moving anymore. I mean, there's just things that happened that you look back on and go, that just incredible set of sequences that allowed us to win where we won. I thought I was trapped in a nightmare in Malaysia because <laughs> it was raining so heavily you couldn't see. And I'd seen on telemetry that Jensen had come around the final corner, but we were looking for the car on the grid and we couldn't find it. And you thought, well, surely he's lined up with, ev with everyone else. But I think a bit of a pack had formed just out of the last corner and he stopped it, switched it off. And then everyone had moved their cars and, and he was so far down towards there that, that, you know, with the rain, you couldn't see him. So there were a group of us running up and down the grid saying, where's the car? And everyone said, I don't know, I can't find it. And it, it was the most bizarre moment because you think, this is properly like a, a nightmare. Could you think, where can he have gone? <laughs> and, it, and it was also one of those races where everyone was spinning off into the gravel and you were just wondering, has, you know, has something happened? Has he, has he gone off between the last corner and the grid? But yeah, eventually, eventually we found it. There was Ross running around on the grid with a set of tyres and a tyre trolley. Tire, a tire trolley. Think, Why has Ross got a set of tyres <laughs> and a tyre trolley? But um, as James said, it was, we were sort of sat there, unaware that the car would never have started. 
And then they, they, you know, they said, right, the race won't go again because the light had got bad. Bit of a celebration, but it was yeah, just the weirdest race I've ever uh, ever had. <laughs> but they came one, one after another, didn't they? Like, yeah. and it, it was extraordinary. The, the Monaco story, where Jensen stopped in the wrong place and had to run down the, the pit straight. Just every weekend there was something new. Did you tell him that he parked in the wrong place? He uh, Shove told him. I, I briefed Shove. Said, don't forget, we got to come round. Shove told Jensen on the way round. He forgot, parked in the scrutineering bay, and then someone told him. Made for good footage, though, seeing him running down the track, waving to the crowd. It was great, and, you know, you, you, you know what it means to a driver to win Monaco. And uh, it's nice, you know, it's nice seeing that when, uh, when someone wins it for the first time ever, because it is almost as big as a world championship to them. And you guys must have felt all your Christmases had come at once that November, because not only do you seal both world championships, Mercedes by the team. That was fantastic, but at the time, we were almost kind of a bit, are we actually good enough for this? And you were reflecting on what... Um, Sorry, Shub, you were still doubting yourselves having just won the World Championship. Yeah, for what it's, for what it's worth. I think we still doubt ourselves today. We have to be clear about it. I mean, the, there's, it's a fierce competition out there, and we're fortunate to have an incredibly fast car. And if you don't keep questioning yourself, you become a bit complacent. I think it, it was also just that Mercedes, you know, last experience of being involved so closely with the team was McLaren um, and everything was so flash and shiny and, you know, they, they'd had a, a great period with them as a, a manufacturer and we, you know, we were an organisation then that was fairly threadbare where we hadn't been in, investing in it, we didn't have any of the shiny stuff that they had and we knew that the car had slipped back a bit and, you know, reflecting on it, it was it was the investment that we subsequently made was absolutely required, but we didn't realise it at the time. There was a sort of weight of expectation that came with it where you thought it's great that the future of the team is secure, but on the other hand, you were just worried that whether we'd do a good enough job to keep them. And then when you sign Nico Rosberg and Michael Schumacher for the following season, that just ramped up the pressure even more. Yeah, it... It, I mean, it, it did, and you know, Michael coming to the team was a really big moment in the in the team's evolution, because you had this driver who knew what it took to win championships, who knew what the level had to be in Formula One, and it was a bit of a, a kind of wake up to us because he really pushed the team to work hard to you know to deliver, and it and it did cause us to take a step up. And we were all, we were all just in, in awe of, of Michael. Even before we met him, it was like, oh, are we worthy of working with someone who's got so many world championships? And It was a bit daunting, really, to, for me. You know, when, when Ross used to talk about, oh, you know, Michael's going to come, he's going to change everything, you wait and see. I thought this, this could be interpreted in one of two ways. And I was slightly worried that it was going to be the way I, I didn't want. But he came and lived up to every expectation about, you know, the, the benchmark of professionalism and helped us develop as a team no end. Let's talk about Michael as a driver first. You were race engineering him in year one, Shove. What stood out about what he was doing in the car? Just his ability to, you know, find one thing that would deliver performance. Or we'd say, well, you know, this will get you half a tenth of a second. And he'd say, right, okay, I'll do that. What's next? And you'd say, okay, well, if you can do this as well at the same time, that's another, um, you know, two hundredths. And there was a lot of this stuff with um, the, the, the Kerr's system then was, was fairly complicated for the drivers. But his ability to keep 
just adding and adding and adding. Um, and he just wouldn't seem to get overloaded. And, you know, all he wanted was the feedback, tell me what I can do better. And it was really just that requirement that, you know, every lab, he's wanting you to make him work and make him do more and, and find performance. And the kind of focus on the, the constant focus on the marginal gains. And it was just every bit of him as a driver was just like, I'll hoover up as much as I can in terms of performance and put it all together. And and that's how I'll, I'll work. He, he worked with the engineers as well in a, in a way that we hadn't seen before, I don't think. You know, he, the hours he put in, in the truck office between sessions and in te- winter testing and so on was, was new to us for sure. But Simon, that's data analysis? Or how was he working with the engineers that you hadn't seen before? It was, a lot of it was data analysis, but he was, he was interested in everything and he wanted to be part of every discussion about car setup and why are we doing the program this way around wouldn't it be better to do it that way around and why do we need to do this you know so he he read he didn't sort of sit there and let us present a plan to him and then just try and execute it or get halfway through it and start complaining he would just be part of making the program part of understanding what we were trying to learn and as i say put in a fantastic amount of hours and it really paid off because we started to then learn about how you involve drivers in you know getting them to buy into a plan You've talked already about the lack of investment in the Braun era. And when do you feel that the trajectory started going up? Was it before 2014? Did you start seeing signs of it prior to that? I mean, from a performance point of view, I think Toto, when he arrived, which I think was 2012, and, and his, one of his assessments, I'm sure there were plenty where he thought we needed to be better, but the assessment that you won't be successful in this mission with the budget that you've got. And he just said, I'll go and speak to the board, leave that to me. Um, and he was able to secure the funding to kind of build the foundation of what we've, what we've got today. But I'd say 2012, if you were watching it really closely, you could actually start to see some good decisions being made and strengthening the team in some really key areas. By 2013, we were well on, well on the road to being a championship winning team. It was just, we still had quite a gap to, to Red Bull. And the problem is the results always kind of lag the good work that's going on. But you've got to give that good work time to come to fruition. And happily, we, you know, we were given the time. And obviously the big step in 2014, a lot well, of that well, came from the power unit. Sorry, yeah, 2014 came And from 12 the to 13, which you mentioned, was when we got started on that power unit. So I think we identified that the V8 days were numbered as well. It, it was obvious. Um, and that the V6 was coming. And it came about, as you remember, probably as, you know, as a variety of slightly strange and arbitrary decisions mm-hmm. by different manufacturers as to what they wanted. But that's what we got. Mm-hmm. And we just got on with it and got started on that early. And, and for me, that was a, an outstanding piece of work. What a little start. Pole position. Well done, Michael. Fantastic. Well done. James, what are your memories of Schumacher's pole lap at Monaco? Pole that wasn't pole because he then had a, a grid, he was carrying a grid penalty, wasn't he? But it was on the day pole position. It's funny you mentioned that one. I was actually thinking about it as Shelf was going through it. First of all, I think we all had a very personal connection with Michael. He, he knew every name of everyone in the garage. And to be completely truthful, 
some of us around this table may not know at some times, at all times, every name around the garage and may have got it wrong. He was incredibly good at knowing about your family, your life, your personal habits, and not because he was putting on an act, because he genuinely cared about everything that was in your life. And you and Michael shared a passion for motorbikes as well. Indeed, I had the pleasure of going out with him on track in two degrees at Paul Ricard and we messed around on motorbikes for a day. That's a level of relationship, which also I hold with, with Lewis, but something you would not normally experience with a driver. Now, the reason why I gave you that is context to what it meant to me in Monaco. I was over the moon from him. I think it was one of the best laps he'd probably ever done in his life to put that car on pole. But I was heartbroken, truly heartbroken for him that this is a guy that we all wanted around this table and within the factory for him to win a race because he deserved it, frankly. And he put so much effort into the team and so much of his life into the team that it was payback to him. And that was his opportunity, truthfully, that year. And I was heartbroken, the fact that that one race is where he dropped back. I felt for him. I still feel now that he didn't get all the results he deserved, given the amount he was putting into the team. Well, and how he helped us improve, I think that's certainly my biggest regret, not seeing Michael win a race for us, because he, he was a different level of driver we'd ever worked with at that point. Your biggest regret over the last 20 years, of, in the yeah. context of everything we're talking about now, is that Schumacher didn't win. Yeah, at a racetrack, yeah, I, I really believe. We all wanted him to win, it didn't, it didn't happen, and a couple of years later we couldn't stop winning. And he, he deserves some of that, because the reason we're winning today, a lot of it's down to him, because he made us better. Yeah, here, here, I agree. Is there a sense of regret that he didn't stay on for a little bit longer? I'm, I'm sensing a little bit. The thing that wasn't perhaps picked up on before is one of the things that made him incredibly strong is actually something we've picked up on now, but he knew where he was weak, and he accepted where he was weak, and he tried to improve on that all the time. So he... He had shortcomings in terms of how he was able to drive the car relative to Nico, but he was very conscious and aware of that and doing what he could to remedy those areas. But there are areas which, in truth, part of it was age, where he wouldn't be able to find everything that was there. And I think he also knew that that was his time. I, I just wish he'd won a race because one more year would have been a fantastic year for him, that's all. Or if we got good sooner, that yeah, would have done, done it as well. <laughs> well, look, you say that by 2013 you had the basis of a, a world championship winning team. A bit like the end of 2008, did you know going into 2014 that you guys had an advantage and that you were gonna be dominant? Um, I think we knew we'd put everything into it. And as Simon said, the work on the power unit started very early. And you know that, that was one of the things that Ross was actually adamant that we had to do well because it was the big opportunity to kind of launch the team toward the front but you only have a sense that you've done a good job you can't affect the job that everyone else does and it's a bit like you know here getting ready for testing for another season you can think you've done a decent job but you've got to see the other cars and see how they perform and it's only at that stage that you start kind of ruling people out as being your competition so it kind of came surprisingly slowly I, rem I remember when we were, we were testing that car here in Bahrain and Nicky was worried that it wasn't quick enough. And he kept going on and on that we needed to try low fuel. We needed to um, try the, the softest tyres. And he was sort of badgering us for two days. And in, in the end, we caved in. And I can't remember how much quicker we were than the other, but it was, we were on the top of the time sheets by quite, quite a large margin. Um, and then about 20 minutes later, he'd taken off in his plane and gone home. So <laughs> it was, even then, it was probably quicker than we thought. But... It, you know, you, you put low fuel in and new tyres and the drivers suddenly start going into qualifying mode and you see what it's actually got. You've given Toto credit for 
budget and just pushing things forward as soon as he came in. You mentioned Nicky Lauda. Just how much credit should be given to Nicky? I mean, Nicky's a bit of the team that you can't ever replace. And culturally, he was a big part of us. The one thing he didn't do was overanalyze. And so often, us as engineers are prone to doing it. And it was great when he he would just sum something up in about 10 seconds and you think, right, okay, we can stop that conversation. So he, he, you know, he was just an instrumental part in shaping the team and we'll always miss him. He's, he's exactly what we needed at the time because he was so straightforward and so honest. Not brutally honest that he'd, you know, he'd destroy you, but he'd just say it as he saw it and he had lots of experience. We knew what, exactly what direction to go in. He was somebody else that I was a bit nervous of his arrival to be honest because because he had a hell of a reputation in the industry and outside it but again you know he turned up and you know once you get comfortable with someone like that you you do start to see how they work and how they think and and uh, he was great he became a great friend he was yeah he was he was tough at first and you know we thought he's been brought in to kind of decide who to fire because he, he came along i think in 20 2012 but it was Simon said the, this relationship that sort of over time you know the team grew to love Nicky and Nicky grew to love the team and you know he was such a great part of, of the team's history They came into the race as championship favourites it's Nico Rosberg who's going to confirm that favouritism and he comes home to win the Australian Grand Prix for Mercedes their 100th Mercedes powered victory in the Formula 1 championship Rosberg takes the season opener by a long long way so 2014 there were 19 races you started on pole 18 times and won 16 of them are there parallels between what you achieved that year with 2009 no I don't not not for me there were so many differences between those years the first one in 2009 as i said is imagine you had a survival mentality you knew that you had to do well in order to have success later and have a team later in 2014 we had the might of mercedes behind us we have toto that's doing everything he can and the culture as shelf brought up very early on was completely different within the team you had this environment that there's no politics there's no backstabbing every single part of the organization is contributing towards why you are there today whether we're in finance hr marketing or engineering made no difference every single person was working together and they're just very different environments to compare to the big thing in 2014 was quite clearly we had two drivers that wanted to win this championship at all costs and the gloves were off and here at this track was obviously symbolic in that way five laps to go hamilton our race leader rosberg in second gaining all the time a little bit too far back but he's gonna go for it down the he inside it, has he outbraked himself yes he has lewis hamilton comes back into the lead once more and mercedes are gonna make it back to back one twos it's lewis hamilton who once again wins the grand prix hamilton triumphs in bahrain from his teammate nico rosberg and it is smiles all round of both celebration and relief in equal measure they're waiting to start the podium party great race great race absolutely but that was two drivers fighting fair but on the limit 
and that was the sort of starter that we knew the whole season was going to pan out somewhat like that or at least the next few years were going to pan out like that but for me it wasn't the same as 2009 uh, we had the budget we had the income we had the team behind us and the car just got stronger and stronger for me 2014 we had a power unit that was stonking and across 15, 16, 17, 18, we became better and better on the chassis side. And I think I can only speak on behalf of myself. I became better as well. And I think we were very fortunate in 14 to have such a dominant car because that didn't last. The gaps got smaller. And yet the team results, if you look at them, are nearly as good. And I think that's a part of it that we all improved as well. And we are continuing to improve. Toto has spoken in the past about the animosity between Lewis and Nico. Did that ever spill over among you guys in the garage? Well, I mean, it, you know, there were never any proper squabbles. There was a little bit of fighting over desk space because they'd sit opposite each other so the laptops would get pushed forwards and backwards. And there were a few moments, but we sort of inherited this rivalry that goes back to the days when they were in go-karts. Those sorts of issues with drivers are just part of motor racing when you've got kind of two together. Yeah, in but a, this was extreme, team, that's for yeah. sure. And part of our role leading the race team was to ensure that they stayed competitive in the garage and they wanted to beat each other, but not to the point that it got messy between the, the, the greater good of the team. I think the, en- the engineering and, and the crews as well actually sort of consolidated together because the feeling was, look, We've, we've made this amazing car with this amazing power unit. We want to see it succeed and we don't want to see it jeopardized by sort of, you know, either one of you deciding that, that, that it's more, their outcome is more important than the outcome for the constructor. You know, we, we grew stronger from that. Given what Lewis has gone on to achieve, do you think Rosberg gets enough credit as a racing driver? I don't. His work ethic was incredible. He learned a great deal from, from Michael. Yeah. Absolutely. He learned, because he, he, he was the guy who was alongside Michael when Michael came to us, and he very astutely identified that Michael, you know, what the successful aspects of Michael's behavior were, which is work hard, be nice to everybody, shake everybody's hand, learn everybody's name, you know, be involved. Because he, as he learned from that, then he took that on through the next few years when Lewis joined us. And I would agree with Ron, I think he was better than we probably tend to remember. Was Rosberg better? at some things than Lewis? Shall this is on track. I'm talking again. His silence is definite. If I, if I could probably add to this, just only, only through looking through the data, if you give Nico a thousand laps, he slowly iterates towards an incredible performance level. If you give Lewis two, he's there, if that makes any sense. So where Nico is excellent is if you give him time in the car to see what his teammate's doing, he's incredible at what he achieves. So to answer your question, that's where he was good. He could continuously adapt and evolve if he had sufficient amounts of time under his belt. That doesn't mean he was poor in changeable conditions, just that's where his true strength lay between the two. And Rosberg was very good at Monaco. He was incredibly good at yeah, Monaco. And amazing. Was yeah. Three on the trot. Yes! World champion! Brilliant! Nico, you are world champion. I'm so proud of you. You did amazing. Were you guys caught out like we were at the end of 2016 when he says, I've had enough, I'm out, I'm out of here? Uh, yeah, because Toto called us into the office and we didn't really know what to expect. But 
if Toto said, list five things that you think I might be about to say, Nico retiring wasn't on that list. And it was just a, you know, a bizarre moment. And even now, it's kind of quite hard to work out why he decided to you know, just ask to be released from his contract. Because even if he wasn't going to beat Lewis again, you know, he was in a, in a good car, he'd be winning races, he'd be part of a team that was doing something amazing. But there must have been, you know, very personal reasons for it. And he'd obviously achieved what he wanted to. Um, But yeah, big, big, big shock. Lewis Hamilton, I feel we haven't spoken enough about him, given what he's achieved with you guys. What makes him so brilliant? Natural talent. He's he's got an incredible work ethic as well. But he is the whole package. He can't find any weakness in, in Lewis. Over time, he's just got stronger. Where's he got stronger? It's not one area, it's the fact that every time he doesn't win a race, he goes and works out why he didn't win it and why the next time that happens, he'll win, win it instead of whoever else did. And, it, and it's this kind of relentless understanding and improving process that he goes through that I think must be quite exhausting because it never really stops. But as Ron said he just keeps getting better and better and he's obviously broken all records but to see a driver who's achieved so much still working for every you know every win like it's their first which you know which is really what he does but it, you can see why why he is where he is and it is down to hard work dedication and just this relentless urge to keep winning James, is he a strategist's dream in that whatever you concoct in the middle of a race, you know he can deliver you wherever what, you need? Whatever mistakes James makes, yeah, it, Lewis is mostly, able to fix them. I mean, for, for clarity. That's how I read that as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lewis, I need 18 qualifying laps from you now. You know he's just going to deliver. Um, where his strengths lie, so shoves him up brilliantly. He's, he never gives up, ever. You don't see his head drop in the race. He doesn't think, I'm 12th, I'm going to give up now. He just wants to know what's ahead of him, how to keep fighting. In fact, often we're the ones that have to tell him, you need to just accept where you are now because what's in front of you is just not achievable anymore. And that, that strength is what allows you, even when you're on the back foot, to push forward and fight his way through. There are so many races that all of us have been privileged to have with him where he's not the leading car at the two and he's the one fighting tooth and nail at the back and you know he'll give everything to you he's not going to back off he's not going to give down he, he may be frustrated and upset that you've made a mistake and put him into a situation that's difficult but he delivers on it and that's what he's done in all the time that we've been with him I always think you sound like the headmaster whenever we get on the radio Lewis it's James you just think oh god what's coming now I think yeah I mean <laughs> Sadly, that's what it's been attributed to. But it, it's normally, I mean, if we take the last example, which was Austria last year. Valtteri, this is James. The gearbox issue is critical. Please stay off the curbs, both cars. You wouldn't believe it, but we, we were, I don't know, the unit to use seconds, kilometers away from failing those cars. And that they weren't simply, they're racing drivers. And as soon as they see the other one in front of them doing slightly more, they'll do slightly more again. And they'll iterate themselves into a loop where those cars were going to stop. Every now and again, it needs just a little bit of correction on things. But fortunately, I don't speak very often. And is Lewis an inspirational character? You say, James, that you've got better over the years. Is it because the sort of the ethos to improve permeates down from the top from lewis from so first of all we are definitely incredibly privileged to have a leadership that acts in the same way as they talk so in other words 
there is no blame culture and there's a culture of accepting that you need all of those around you. And that permeates from, from Toto absolutely within the team and the environment. And we are led by, in all the time that I've been in the sport, the best TP that you could imagine, really. In terms of Lewis and what he brings to the party, they're all different. Every single driver and what they've brought is different. As we all discussed, Michael brought his strengths to it. Nico brought his strengths to it. Valtteri brings strengths to it in a different way as well. And Lewis brings his own set of strengths. And I don't think it's one individual. I think it's how they form together in the culture we've created here. That's why we are who we are today and how we work together. So what I mean by that is, is one individual isn't strong enough to completely change the dynamics of thousands of people that are building this car. Did Lewis fit into the culture here immediately or has he had to adapt? Have you seen him adapt? Oh, he, he's definitely, I'll speak on my behalf only because I, I can't talk on behalf of others, but he's a very different character to the character that joined us. When he joined us, he was a mercenary. He was here for himself to win races. That desire to win hasn't disappeared, but what he's realized is you do it with a team and as a part of a team, and you become the greatest sportsman that exists as the result of it. One individual can't do it by himself. Shav, how have you seen him change? As James said, I think early on, it, you know, he, he was this sort of relentless uh, desire to win every race would manifest itself in his driving and he would just be pushing and pushing and and couldn't stop and and I think now he's just becoming a much more calculating driver he's from you know the first lap of the first race he's thinking about championships he's thinking about looking after the car and the tires a lot more and as much as he I mean he hasn't got any better at losing races because that's just in his nature certainly his approach to the weekend and his thinking in the car and everything is just becoming really calculated and clean and clinical to the point where you know if someone asks you about Lewis making mistakes you kind of you're thinking back and you're going you know you're going back seasons often to try and recall the instances where it happens he's just getting you know well he, his target is perfection and that's a difficult target to pick but that's that's what he's trying to achieve and if we think back to the Sakia Grand Prix last year Lewis unfortunately has Covid and George Russell comes in there's no doubt that George Russell is a very fast racing driver but he's at the very start of his career is there one thing that you can pinpoint that you missed from Lewis that weekend Difficult because Lewis wasn't there to do the weekend, and the weekend played out very similar. The you know the, the run plan for the drivers was the same as it would have been for for Lewis, and it was a different track. But Lewis's natural talent makes him adapt very, very quickly to a track. His pole position rate's very high, so you would have presumed he would have been on pole, and you would have presumed he would have had a good start, and he would have led the race because that's what he does most of the time. But uh, you know, George did a fantastic job that weekend but you'd have to presume having seen what Lewis has done for the past decade he would have been down the road a little bit we made some concessions didn't we through the weekend for for George being new to us so you know he he hadn't had a lot of time in the car with us and we therefore didn't try and overload him with things that we'd like to have got done you know procedures and test items that we would perhaps have felt we could have been engaged with with Lewis in the car we thought well actually that needs to take a back seat whilst we make sure George is comfortable in the car so it was a little bit more difficult. The last thing I did just want to touch on was I've made a note here and I've written down awesome foursome. Um, You guys have worked together for 20 years and I just wanted to talk about 
your relationship because you are also like on the pit wall. I am looking at the Mercedes pit wall. Who else? It's you four. And it's, it's a four man now. So it is you four. I am yeah. looking at the pit wall. How lovely. <laughs> um, how strong is the bond between you? Not that strong. <laughs> <laughs> I think one, one really handy thing is we've all made all the same mistakes and all yeah. made all the same good decisions. You've got this reference where we only need to say, oh, yeah, but remember Spa. And everyone's like, oh, yeah, I remember that. Let's not do that one again. And it's quite good at avoiding mistakes. You can communicate quite quickly because we all kind of know how, we, how each other is. And I think if we didn't get on, we wouldn't all have been together for the last 20 years working together. There would have, there would have been some cracks starting to show. But, it, you know, you think it's not... You've got to like the people you work with in this industry. So uh. there were a lot of very challenging years in that twenty, you know, and and it's not to say they're easier now necessarily, but you know some of those times we went through that you talked about, we've all talked about, were massively formative, and you you remember them forever. And how does it feel for you guys to be? I mean, it doesn't so much apply to you, Ron, I don't think, but for you guys to all be senior members of staff now, do do you? How do you reflect on the guy that joined in, in 98, 2001, etc.? I, I mean, to be honest, you just think of it as being part of a team and, you know, we've, we've got the jobs, we try and do the jobs as best as we can, but there's so many people that have um, led to this team being successful that, you know, it's difficult to not count the enormous sort of um, input that everyone's made. I remember when I arrived on day one, thinking that this all looks very new and new and exciting and all my experiences are at this team I've never worked anywhere else but it, it is just nice to have been been part of this phenomenal journey you ever yeah. going to work for someone else are you intrigued to know how no. other teams do it I think it's fair to say that we had opportunities to and we haven't and there's good reason behind that this is family 20 years of your life we have more dinners together than we will do with our respective partners no doubt about it you have trust and faith in each other but complete trust and faith and I perhaps contact is all you need to understand what that person's thinking and where you are and I for one would miss all of that if I wasn't here and I think that's a bond that you just simply can't generate in the same way you need the group of individuals that are at the same position and level to have grown into that together and that's the journey we've all been on and it's it's one that I cherish, frankly, most days. Have you made some pacts that you're all in or you're all out? No. I don't, I don't no. think... I don't think <laughs> we we, we certainly haven't done that, but I, uh, speaking as the, the elder member of the group, I think we all know what each other's strengths and weaknesses are, and we all know what's expected of us when we do our day job, but outside of the racetrack, we all get on so well. We generally eat with each other in the evening and have a crack and there's lots of anecdotes about different championships and things we've done and what our families have been up to so it's uh, it's not like work to be honest yeah it's I, a pleasure to be with these guys and everyone else in the garage I think also I was going to say that I think it's a bit you know the, the, the pit wall is the is the bit of the operation that's on telly when we win and lose on Sunday but it's such a massive organisation. It's, it's it's sort of wrong to to fixate on on what happens on Sunday afternoon. You know, we've been handed this fantastic PU that was absolutely instrumental in 2014 and and the subsequent years, and the factory have made a fantastic car for us to to operate with. So it makes us look good on Sundays. And there's there's teams up and down the pit lane who'd look just as good if they were handed the same car. Ron, you said numbers dropped to f- about 450 in 2009. Before you started having to take into account the budget cap, 
what did they climb to? What were you at your peak in terms of numbers? Currently? Yeah, or, or pre-budget count, I don't know. Pre, Pre-budget, just sub a thousand potentially in Brackley. I couldn't tell you exactly what it is at Bricksworth because they have many different projects on the go there, not just Formula One, FE, road car things. Right, finally from me, I want from each of you, favourite driver you've worked with, Ron, let's go down the line from you. Michael Schumacher, but mainly because I was in awe of him before he arrived and when he left the team, I was even more in awe of him, just the way he behaved and how he treated all the team members. Shab? I mean, I'd second Ron's comments, but I can't leave Jensen out, can I? And I sort of, you know, as an engineer, I I was learning uh, on the job very much with him and just a lot of happy memories and, you know, funny moments. But that was quite a long, long relationship. So, yeah, really, really enjoyed that, especially seeing him win the championship in 2009 was, was big. Simon? Is Lewis listening? this so really <laughs> does he listen to your podcast we've done uh, one with him I, w- I would say we'll find out say something yeah, and we'll find out find out <laughs> yeah. I would say either Michael Schumacher and not just because you know that, that's a sort of a common theme it, it really is genuinely true he was really really impressive when we worked with him but before that I was I was great friends with the guy that I was engineering in WRC and I had a you know he was a great mate of mine Richard Burns and we went on to win the World Championship before I stopped doing that. And, uh, yeah, great loss. And James? I actually had the same... Does Toto listen to this? Because for me, Toto Wolf, best racing driver, I have the opportunity to work with. But it, if he doesn't listen to this, on the other hand, I'd, I'd mirror Michael. I had a perception that was entirely wrong of him before he joined. I thought he was arrogant. I thought he was cold, because that's the impression you got. It took a few minutes before you realise that that's not true whatsoever at all. And then his greatness truly shone uh, in that period that we were all with him. And I think it's fair to say we all learnt a huge amount and we are different as a result. Favourite car that you've worked on? Let's start with you this time, James. I mean, thank God I never work on the car because I assure you it won't get out of the garage. Um, but favourite car that I was able to, to play around with? Um, it was probably the 2019 car. That was a fierce fight for the championship and um, the closest we've, you know, there were just up and down moments throughout that entire season. The car was more predictable. We'd learnt a lot by how to use it by then and it was a different era of the sport. And that's the one I think that stands out in my mind as, as one I enjoyed the most. Simon? I was, I was trying to think then when James was talking and I, I can't decide whether to go for the, for the Braun GP car, which was which was fantastic and we, it, when, we, when we look at it now in the flesh when it runs at Goodwood it's, it's tiny and it's completely different to where Formula 1 is now that was a great car but I'd probably go with the 2014 the beginning of the hybrid era was a monumental piece of work and uh, I loved every minute of it Chubb? I probably kind of fall into a similar camp to Simon because you've got your emotional attachment to that Braun car knowing what it took to actually get that thing to the racing circuit to get it to win a championship and just the the amount of sort of blood sweat and tears that went from so many people into that in a year when when we had to fight for survival but then yeah the recent cars just technologically they're they're mind-boggling hugely complicated probably too complicated but for me I th- yeah I think in that regard the 2014 car was just such a nice bit of kit so well conceived and 
you know, the, the credit goes to all the people at the factory who schemed it out, designed it, developed the aero, created the phenomenal power unit, but it was just a brilliant exercise in getting it right first time and, uh, yeah, a good testament to what we can do as a team. And Rod? Unfortunately, ditto. I think the 2009 Braun car, because of the emotional side of that of that season, but for engineering excellence and delivering on promises, the 2014 car was just an amazing piece of kit and it came out and it just crushed everybody and if we did this in 12 months time you'd all be saying the 2021 car right i, I thought he was going to say the metro <laughs> metro 6r4 or something no. <laughs> the wrc yeah no that wasn't a very impressive car the reynard indy car no that was well, that wasn't so bad the year i was doing i it. drew some of that it was a turd that one <laughs> no not the one not the one that was a turd <laughs> Guys, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you very much for your time. And I hope you've enjoyed just reflecting a little bit maybe over the last 20 years. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. It's hard not to love these guys, isn't it? They epitomise team spirit and determination. And after listening to them for an hour, I've learned more about why Mercedes has had so much success. And they're very funny, aren't they? I mean, Ron calling a car a turd, we all know what he means, don't we? Guys, thank you very much for your time. It was great to catch up. And let's hope this season turns out to be as close as the Bahrain Grand Prix suggested. I would absolutely love to hear any thoughts you have on that chat and whether you've ever encountered any of the Brackley boys. Reading through your comments is one of my favourite things to do. So send them in to me at Tom Clarkson F1 or use the hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid. And remember, I'll read out the best ones next week. Which brings me on to what you sent in about Kamui Kobayashi. After last week's show, there were some crackers, of which here are a few. Seabear got in touch to say, I met Kamui in the paddock of the Daytona 24 Hours this year. I was lucky enough to be one of the few that got a VIP pass to the pits during the race, and I got to meet him soon after he got out of the car at the end of the race. It was an amazing experience. Wow, I bet it was, Seabear. And of course, Kamui finished a close second in that race, proving his undoubted talent once again. Dr. Max Davison had this to say, I loved watching Kamui's overtaking skills in Formula One. My son used to refer to them as ninja attacks and I loved his Kamui baseball cap. What a pity he didn't get a top tier race seat in Formula One. While Kamui was a very exciting driver to watch, wasn't he? He was always up for it and never had an off day. It makes you wonder how many more podiums would have been possible with the top machinery he's since enjoyed in sports cars. And Craig Taylor said, interesting fact that Kamui Kobayashi finished ninth in his first Grand Prix, just like Yuki Tsunoda did in Bahrain. But in 2009, points were only awarded to the top eight drivers. Well, that's a good spot, Craig. Thank you. And if we're ever looking for a researcher on Beyond the Grid, I know where to come. Well, I've absolutely loved reading those. Thank you. And I really hope you've enjoyed today's episode as well. And please keep sending over your feedback because we love it. I'll be back next week with another great personality, singular, from the world of Formula One. So speak to you then. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audio Boom. Until next time, keep it flat out. <laughs>